The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Third Men Podcast, the Jack White Third Men Records history program, and I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And we are joined today by a special guest, someone who we've been enjoying the music of, or from, I'm not sure which is appropriate there, uh, the music by for quite some time now, someone who's been in the Third Man orbit for a bit, and who I personally really enjoyed live and has been a part of some just really beautiful projects, Mr. William Tyler. William, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, your music is incredible. And we're so happy that you're on the show with us today because we've been we've been wanting to talk to you for a while. So yeah, we've been nice. you've been on our bucket list. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wet in there. Hopefully, there's a lot of buckets. <laughs> y'all, y'all seem pretty young to be doing a bucket list. But I'm actually 85. James is uh, got yeah. I've got Benjamin Button. I'm 92, so, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, it's not a contest, William. No, it's not. We, we, can, we can argue over who remembers sheet music better later. <laughs> or or uh, piano rolls. Piano rolls, yeah. 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 Um, 
So anyway, star of our favorite talkies, William Tyler. Um, <laughs> thanks so much. Yeah, for no, I didn't me. make the transition to talkies. No, okay. <laughs> it's still silent. Yeah, yeah, I'm still silent. Yeah, <laughs> he's what we call a silent musician. It's uh, avant garde. It's interesting. We go that direction here because William, your music is generally instrumental, and it's something that uh, you know I think may have been at least to me, was sort of a surprise bit of enjoyment because it, it's not something I traditionally go to. It's not like um, instrumental guitar music is something I'm naturally drawn to necessarily, but your music is so intoxicating. And we'll get to it in a little bit, but I was personally just mesmerized when I saw you on that Disgraceland LP. And I, I definitely want to talk about that in a little bit because I thought your set your set's frankly the set I go back to on that collection. I mean, yes, the Dead Weather and the Kills are great, but there's something about you with that live band and these incredible melodies that that simply don't need lyric. In fact, it'd be ruined with lyric. So I'm a big fan of your music. I, I really love what you do. I wanted to talk a little bit about your origins. So you're a Nashville native. I, I think I had read that your family located there maybe a few years prior to your birth in 76. I I could sometimes hear a bit of Southern influence, you know, I mean, obviously, since your work has a bluegrass touch to it, but there's a, you know, almost a little almany kind of sprinkle throughout some of your work. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of your influences growing up and how you gravitated toward music. I know your dad was in the music business, too. Is that right? Yeah, he um, he's a songwriter and publisher and occasional performer. He and my mom moved up to Nashville from Mississippi and yeah, in 76, which is a pretty prime time to be mm-hmm. here. It's kind of the peak of the whole like outlaw. I don't know the all Robert Altman movie had just come out and like urban cowboy was about to come out it's sort of like modern country music at the time, I guess was kind of entering pop culture again. So I don't have a lot of concrete memories of, you know, like I, I remember there always being music in the house, musicians a lot in the house. My mom's family was very musically inclined. Her dad, who was, I mean, my maternal grandfather, owned a music store and was actually for a while, he was the exclusive dealer for Steinway pianos in the state of Mississippi. Hmm. And he had a lot to do with getting the Jackson Symphony Orchestra started. So like he was a big influence as well in terms of like educating me about orchestral instruments and classical music, classical music. And I mean, he had a cutoff point with jazz. I don't think he really made it much past into any sort of bebop stuff besides maybe like monk, but like, you know, he was 
very inclined to like Great American Songbook, sure, kind of classic Cole Porter jazz, you know, Django Reinhardt kind of stuff. Or oh yeah, he loved Django Reinhardt. Actually, so there was this concert hall up here in Nashville called Three Twenty Eight, which probably would have been closed by the time the White Stripes were really playing here. I'm just trying to think if there would have ever been any connection. I'm sure somebody in, in the third man world. Anyway, it was kind of a scuzzy rock club, but like it held about a thousand people. And I remember like, I, I mean, I don't remember what year it was, but my grandparents were up here visiting us and they went and saw Stefan Grappelli play at this at this place, which is like a, such a weird place for him, them him to be playing. for you know, me imagine my granddad he was like very straight laced kind of like almost kind of like a english gentleman kind of <laughs> you know yeah. southern gentleman but like you know yeah anyway yeah, yeah no yeah Django reinhardt and uh yeah a lot of the show tunes you know like you know louis armstrong duke ellington it, because he had been a steinway dealer he had a couple of really nice pianos at their house in jackson so between sort of like family gatherings down in jackson being a lot of times based around his kind of music and his world. And then, you know, up here in Nashville in the house I grew up in, a lot of, you know, my dad and his friends and my mom and her friends and a lot of guitar picking and people coming by and playing music and some vague memories of like wanting to go to bed and downstairs there would be a bunch of older people, you know, kind of partying and <laughs> smoking cigarettes and playing guitars. And, you know, it's kind of, so, you know, like I, I was interested in music to a degree at a, as a child. Well, my first like obsession, my first love as a kid was like zoology, nature specials, you know, like David Attenborough stuff, like all that stuff yeah. I, I, I devoured, you know. And then I got really into like history, specifically, you know, like Civil War, American Revolutionary, you know, frontier history, whatever, you know, like stuff that was pretty accessible. And some of my initial interest in music, I think, was kind of like how it related to history. Like, you know, I mean, I loved classical music because I don't know, it was just that was kind of what I gravitated towards as a kid. But then, like, I remember, like, when I was like eight or nine, you know, the Ken Burns Civil War series was on PBS and the music and that was a big influence on me. I mean, oh, yeah. I, you know, so like it's kind of funny because like I've been through a lot of different periods of stuff in the 30 years that i've been playing music but it kind of like when i started doing instrumental guitar stuff it kind of almost immediately took me back to some very formative places with like kind of vernacular folk songs and historical landscapes and stuff you know that had very little to do with some of the music i'd been doing in between and of course you know like it, it from there it's just it's changed and evolved to a degree. I mean, like the show you're referencing, you know, at, at, um, at Jack's house or Jack Lawrence's house, it's like, you know, I mean, that's, that's a whole different group and we can talk about that too, but long story short music and being, just being around creative adults and artists, like we're very fortunate. We, we were very fortunate to have that as, as kids. I'm sort of surprised to hear this answer from you because I was sort of expecting to hear like Skinnerd or something like that. I wasn't expecting <laughs> to hear like this big tapestry of music from that 
particular spot in the past. What a wonderful bit of access you had. I mean, that's a really well, unique well, and also too, also you know, like just to I think probably in a way that you know, I mean, I was really interested in you know our family had um, some indirect connection to some of the people who were recording some of the earlier blues sides in Mississippi and stuff. And so like that was, you know, like pre-war blues was something I got really interested in early on. Yeah, around Jack White, that's called small talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's really it's really funny. How, like that music is still really very alive in that part of the world. Like in a I don't know how much it's being passed down to like younger generations as an active thing, but it's like that part of the South is so kind of almost stuck in time in a way that it's like, like, you know, you hear like a junior Kimber record from like the nineties and that could have been from the fifties, you know I mean? Like it's just, Mm -hmm. but yeah, anyway, but that kind of music always interested me and, 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 you know, probably helped. It was interesting because it was like when I got into rock, I was like very late to like listening to rock music compared to a lot of kids my age, never really got into hip hop. And like all that stuff was huge, you know, with most kids. And, you know, there was like the summer of Nirvana, Nevermind, like, you know, and that I kind of got hooked on that. And then, you know, I discovered my parents' old Beatles and Stones and Kinks records. And, you know, that was really important too. But to your like funny, like my parents weren't record collectors and they actually were sort of like not, I don't think they listened to a lot of pop music. Like they didn't have, I think they had Eat a Peach, but they didn't have, they certainly didn't listen to Skinnerd. <laughs> they didn't have any like zeppelin records they didn't have any sabbath records they didn't have any you know like none of the hard rock stuff like they had like james taylor and cat stevens and Joni mitchell like that zone which mm-hmm. yeah but way more folky oriented what i've found is that the further you get into a business the less you want to be a collector or kind of involved in that side of it that's not true of everyone obviously but speaking for Paul and I, I don't know, I, I stopped collecting comics nearly as often because I am in the comics business. And yeah, yeah. It just, and it just became like mundane to a point, or at the very least, I had easy access to a lot of stuff and I didn't, it, it just became less coveted, I guess. So hearing that a musical family isn't hoarding lots of records makes sense because they can make music and they have access to the actual musicians a lot of the time. But it's interesting you mentioned a lot of that kind of Ken Burnsy stuff being an influence. I've never heard anybody have a Ken Burns period before in their musical career, but that it makes a lot of sense in terms of your instrumental guitar playing because your music has a, a interesting ability to do two things. It can fade into the background and you can enjoy something else while listening to it, while still absorbing the music. And then it can also equally be right up front and full focus. And it works in that duality, which I really appreciate about it because like I could be on a road trip and just zone out while still appreciating your music. And then I can hyper-focus on it and still love every second of it. So it's beautiful. You What you do is quite beautiful. And I wanted to talk to you about how you craft a song like that or a song in general, because it seems like something like a guitar riff or something would come first or a series of riffs that build on a melody. But you have a song like Missionary Ridge from your LP, Behold the Spirit. And a lot of the legwork being accomplished is from your bass picking. We wanted to know a little bit about how you sit down and construct a song, what thought process goes into it. Do you start 
with a riff? Do you go right from a melody? How do you, how does that work? It usually starts with the riff. I don't know. It's a, it, you know. We could have a whole discussion about like what the difference between a melody and a riff is. I think when I was starting to write instrumental tracks or guitar or songs or whatever, like it, they, they were more like collections of riffs that were all in the same key, you know, and they usually came out of multiple sit down. A lot of what I do is just noodling or it used to be, it's a little more deliberate now, but like, 10 years ago or whatever, let's say, you know, it would be like, I would have a couple of guitars sitting around and, you know, usually keep one in a certain tuning for a few days until I finished what I thought was a song. Mm -hmm. But that song really could be just like an amalgam of four or five different riffs, but they're also, you know, could be seen as interlocking melodies. I mean, Missionary Ridge has like five or six sort of like, sections and they're all kind of like versions of riffs and melodies that kind of follow some very similar chord movements. And like as I kind of kept doing it and just get, getting my ear sort of like attuned to paying attention to melody, a lot of times the melodies would come before I got the guitar in my hands. And then I would kind of search out the melody through the strings and then that would kind of become a song. And most of especially the more like complicated compositions I have, you know, are like written piecemeal and um assembled basically you know like kind of like almost in like miniature movements and then when i feel like there's a arc that i can make to it i'll kind of present it to myself as like okay this is the final arrangement of this piece and then you know it might change a little bit by the time it's actually recorded but i usually kind of arrange as i go and then you know there's there's things that i've done that are fairly simple melodies and I definitely in the last few years have been moving more and more into like writing kind of more ambient static type music. And so there's not as much melodic movement anymore. There's definitely like anchors of melody, but it's becoming more and more about sound world and less about like consonant percussive movement. Did you ever have a Brian Eno period? I guess I'm having it now. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I always love, I mean, no, I mean, he was always like, when you discover all that music, yeah. the thing is, it's kind of, it's like, yeah, like I probably had like a slightly atypical childhood in terms of what I grew up around in terms of like being around adults who were primarily musicians and artists. And I definitely had like a different formative experience with music in terms of like, you know, listening to 
classical music and folk music and historical music and big band jazz, you know, rather than like what was on MTV at the time. Right. Up until a certain age, you know, which was, trust me, at the time, very alienating. I felt like a total freak because I didn't care about Michael Jackson and Guns N' Roses, you know. Maybe it's like something about like how everybody kind of gets into like this hormonal confusion at a certain age when you're an early adolescent teenager. I mean, I still was gravitating towards like older rock and roll, like British Invasion stuff and you know American Garage stuff and like and then punk. But then by the time I was like 19 or 20, I kind of had fallen in with a group of peers where like we all were interested in kind of the same kind of things. I guess it was indie rock, you know, but like looking yeah. back on it, that was a very broad like I mean, that was everything from Tortoise and Stereo Lab to Guided by Voices and you know, Chibo Motto and I mean, it wasn't really one genre, you know, it was just kind of like music that was only on MTV late at night. I, I can hear some Chibo Motto in your stuff, actually, now that you, <laughs> now that you mention it, there's a little well, bit I of... mean, it's fun. Well, no, but it's funny, too, because like, you know, because now I've put out records with Merge and I put out a record with Thrill Jockey with Marie Sanderson. And I've done some work with Drag City through people like the Silver Jews. And like that stuff, like those like label, kind of like the way Third Man definitely has like a label identity and probably like a, a label like fan base. Yeah. Those labels in the mm-hmm. late 90s, early 2000s just were incredibly important to me as touchstones of just like, oh, if it comes out on this label, I'm probably going to like it, even if it's not, even I don't really know what it sounds like. And that kind of was the case in a lot of ways. So I felt like, you know, by the time I was like 2021, 20, like my tastes were roughly kind of running parallel with most of the people who I was hanging out with. But at the same time, like that's also like the age you find out about or like you rediscover like weird older records. Cause like then you're kind of like meeting like guys who like work at the college radio station or the record store and they know about, you know, like German music from the 70s or like the Brian Eno stuff or like free jazz or i feel like the early 2000s was when a lot of the like global psychedelic stuff from the 60s and 70s started getting like reissued you know and like Mm -hmm. still kind of pre-internet basically essentially you know i would say a college radio station is still one of the best places to find music that i think two people have heard um (laughs) because it's it's so like absolutely it's so eclectic and it's so like there's always somebody who's who's in a radio course or whatever uh, at, as the as the DJ and they're just like I have this record and I am going to play it on the air for somebody at two in the morning. <laughs> and, no, and I found out about a lot. We so yeah, I mean we had a pretty great college station here through Vanderbilt University in Nashville that is no longer around. They sold the frequency a couple of different times. But, you know, when I was like in my early 20s, it was very much that kind of stuff. Like you you would hear every range of and, and, and kind of like WFMU, they sort of had a lot of like community DJs that weren't necessarily affiliated with the school. They might have yeah. been alumni, uh, alumnus or whatever. And I still feel like that's kind of the way. I mean, there's I mean, now it's like Internet radio, like. I don't know. I don't I don't really like having to use the internet any more than possible. Like I really like terrestrial radio. I really like going to a record store and like having a friend recommend something. I actually like been really into this thing of like record clubs, you know, where you like mm-hmm. just subscribe to a record store somewhere and just you get sent a record every month. But you know, having said that, if I just left 
my computer on something like WFMU or NTS or, you know, there's a lot of internet radio stations. I mean, obviously WFMU is a terrestrial station too, but just the free form, I think it's still the best way to find out about music because, I mean, to be honest, like, especially now, there's so much to keep up with. And uh, (laughs) it's not even like keeping up, like you can't keep up with it. Like I'm a pretty, like, I'm like, I'm pretty far on the spectrum, you know, like kind of like, so I'm really into like, I have really, really good memory recall with like taxonomical things, kind of like Asperger's stuff, you know? And I remember like when I was like starting to get into like record, obscure music record collecting culture, you know, like in my early twenties, this says something a lot about my personality, probably like there'd be times where I would just be so frustrated that like, I was never going to be able to like hear all the music in the world. And like, I remember having a conversation with one of my best friends who still is one of my best friends who was like having a similar experience with discovery, but his was having the opposite emotional response. He was like, Oh, I'm just so happy that I'll never run out of new music. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, wow, that really, really says a lot about like how I'm viewing this. Um, Cause it's not like I want to possess all the, it's just, I don't know. It's like, I have a pretty like unquenchable thirst for knowledge. And, and it's like, I'm kind of one of those people who are, I'll either like be completely connected and go into one of those like insane, like, Chinese telephone Wikipedia like five hour trips of like you know what I mean you know yeah, we yeah. Can, like get into God knows how many wormholes <laughs> or I'll just like not pay attention to anything for a few days and just give my brain a rest you know yeah I've got great news for you there's like thirty Bad Bunny albums that uh, you can listen to. <laughs> you're never gonna run out of those yeah no it's uh, <clears throat> very popular man I hear uh, actually I, I had another uh, technique question before because I, I do want to yeah. uh, touch on how you. It's really interesting you talk about these record clubs because um, now I kind of want to join one because the way I gather music is, well, James and I have a drink too many and, and exchange music some, some right. nights on, on YouTube and stuff. But I also am a, part a great of a, way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. A part of a lot of like uh, fan groups where I get recommendations and things like that. But I think that's a really smart idea. But I wanted to talk about. Um, so when I when I saw you live and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I, I saw you live when you opened for Jack in 2018. And what I was so intrigued by, because my conception of you to that point had been with a backing band, but you were solo and you were playing with essentially tape loops. They were on pedals and stuff. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you developed that tape loop technique, because they're so intricate. Like you record yourself for a while and then you kind of riff on that and you record yourself for a while and then you riff on that. And then some sometimes there would be a couple going at once. It makes all the sense in the world that you would be steeped in classical music growing up. Of course, like I, I didn't even occur to me to ask you that, but of course, now that you say that, yes, that makes perfect sense. It's a little like, um, what's the Brian Wilson technique? Um, modulating, modulating sound. I forget. But anyway, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you started down that path. And do you prefer playing with tracks that you've recorded yourself and layered or do you prefer the maybe some more of the spontaneity of playing with a with a backing band? I was going to say, do you prefer playing with yourself? But I decided not to say that. But I'm going to say it now. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's really hard to say I, I, because when I started playing music in front of people, you know, outside of like you know high school band and stuff like that. 
I found a lot of comfort in being in ensembles and I usually wasn't like, I don't know what they would call it, like first chair. Like I wasn't, sometimes I was the lead guitar player. A lot of times I was sort of like the rhythm guitar player. I felt like I learned a lot by sort of like learning how to fit into groups of people playing music. And there's a completely different dynamic to that than being a solo player. You're not restricted, but you're also not held up or, you know, uplifted by anybody else either. And a lot of the people that I found that I enjoy collaborating with the most, whether or not they play guitar or they play another instrument, have had kind of a similar background to me in terms of like having experience as a side person or ensemble mu musician, whether they were classically trained or formally trained in jazz or, or they were just like kind of more like me, just sort of autodidacts and more like folk oriented. It's kind of like, there's this whole argument in music and, and recording about like, does technology dictate what is created or are you going to create the same thing no matter what the technology you're presented is? And it's kind of like the argument in linguistics about like, does language shape thought or does everybody basically think the same and we just express it differently through different languages? And for me, I didn't get interested in loops and stuff until... When did I get my first sampler? I was probably like 22 or 23. And I, I did get it because I was in a group where like we needed to have more like textures, not necessarily rhythmic textures, but, you know, pretty quickly, like I started realizing like, oh, this is like, this is fun. You know, like this is cutting, you know, your favorite beats or your favorite sections off records. And like, you know, I did some of that. I never really made music that way, you know, like, cause, but like, but it did lead me into trying to do that with guitar. And then to your point, like playing to loops of myself, most of what I do now and then is still doing it in real time. I mean, I still use the line six green pedal, but so do a lot of people. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm always amazed at like that pedal gets like so much crap because it's was so popular for a while. And now it's kind of waned because there's so many fancier ones, but it kind of does this one thing pretty amazingly. And like, and I've seen so many different people do amazing things with it, you know, like from like Andrew Bird to, you know, Bill Frizzell to like, you know, I don't know, like noise bands. I mean, I think I got I, I went to a lot of like noise shows and like avant garde kind of house shows like when I was getting interested in pedals and um, that kind of got me interested in that, you know, and like yeah. not necessarily knowing how to use them like the right or the wrong way. But then, you know, also realizing that like if you have compelling musical ideas, it's like those, those Eno Bowie records. It's like those guys probably knew a little more than they were letting on about how synthesizers and loops worked. But I, I think they were also kind of just making it up as they went along. They weren't like in a laboratory in a college doing it, you know, like a lot of the early electronic composers. And I love that stuff too. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost unfathomable to me to understand how, they used to make like actual tape loop composition. Yeah. I, I was just watching a, a, a 1970 performance by Kraftwerk. Yeah. And, and 1970, I would like, it was just it right, blew right. Me away because half the people in the audience had no idea what was going on, but they were looking at all the Bohemians who were really getting into it. And so they, <laughs> right, right, you right. can see it kind of cascade a little bit, but yeah, there was a trailblazing going on in those days. <laughs> 
it's kind of amazing how so much of that music still sounds modern you know like i don't yeah i mean whatever as as a side i mean a lot of that stuff a lot of, especially a lot of that german stuff you know like especially when i like figured that when i could start hearing the through line between that stuff into hip-hop into techno it was kind of like it's kind of like when you hear the first couple black sabbath records and you're like well i mean metal changed but it never really got, didn't really get like heavier i mean it's kind of like I mean, Black Sabbath still sounds modern, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Craftwork still sounds modern. I, I don't think the white stripes sound out of time, behind the time, ahead of the time. They just, it just sound, they just kind of sound timeless. It's just sort of, there's a certain kind of aesthetic that I don't know. And some of it's production choice for sure. Um, although a lot of that stuff is cyclical, you know, um, you know, cause like a lot of the things that were like really cheesy in the eighties and nineties production wise are kind of coming back in vogue now. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I just I had the benefit of having time to sort of work out a lot of ideas by myself, and I just kind of taught myself how to play along the loops, and then that did change the way I wrote, you know, because I was like, oh, I can have a section here where I can like layer things, and it has to be pretty linear because that's the way certain these pedals work, and I'm not like a like my knowledge of that world like cuts off at a very, very early technological, not early, but like, like I didn't get into like analog sense and I, I didn't get into Ableton. Like I've tried. I just, it doesn't hold my interest very long. Maybe it will someday. I will say this though, like, cause I know there's a lot of tangents. I think that for me having a, a limited amount of choices in terms of like how much time you have and what kind of different instruments you have, what kind of different auxiliary pieces of technology you have. That really helps me make decisions. I don't like being in a situation where it's like, we can cut a hundred tracks and then spend yeah. a year going through them. And like, for some people, that's the way they make music. And, and sometimes it's really great, but I've always found that reducing the variables brings out the best in people's creative and improvisational instincts. Well, that's and, the yeah. third man right. motto. Uh, yeah, keeping everything as uh, having a lot of obstacles to overcome and things to challenge yourself. So giving yourself limitations. That's the word I'm looking for. Limitations definitely spark creative solutions. And I know that's something obviously Jack has put into his own music and to third man. And it's something that we appreciate quite a lot. And I have found that myself in my own creative endeavors that I've had a lot more success or at least liked pieces more after I've 
put a set of not always arbitrary, but yeah, sometimes arbitrary limitations on them. Uh, um, but, with with infinite choices, I just find that I act on impulse more readily. Yeah. Uh, where because y- you need a path, so if there's infinite paths, better get down one quick. And if it's the wrong one, yep, guess you got another yeah. one. Idic. Yeah. Uh, but there is um there there is the 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 two the two different methods of like photography. You could take a million photos and then choose the two that are good, or you could spend you know ten years trying to craft the perfect photo or whatever. So. Right. People have different ways of getting to the same place a lot of the time. And yeah, I I appreciate where you're coming at with with does the tool actually create the music or does the person create the music with the tool? But even when you have a lot of choices, a lot of times people like I was talking to an electronic producer about this like about a year ago and he was saying something like I can't remember what like in Fruity Loops, you know, that program like what mm-hmm. Can't remember what the default BPM is when you when you open it up, you know, because everything defaults to something most. Yeah. Songs. And he was basically saying like, there's a reason that most trap songs are at that BPM, and it's because it's the default one when pretty good. <laughs> and most people, or not most, but a lot of like really really famous traps and hip hop tracks have been made in Fruity Loops, which is not the most expensive software to get. And it's like, duh, like people are doing this, like they're like, they don't <laughs> like it's folk music for a lot of times. It's, it's, it's music yeah. being made by people, you know, it's, and so it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, I don't have a lot of gear, you know, and I, I certainly know people who own a lot more guitars than I do. I mean, I do love guitars. I guess if I could keep collecting guitars for the rest of my life, I would, although I'm starting to almost like run out of space. <laughs> for the few that I have, I don't, I, I don't have that many, you know, it's like at some point you're sort of like, well, I think if I had like one of, I was going to say, I was going to say, it's kind of like a Noah's Ark thing, ideal scenario for me. But I mean, that was two of everything, but I was just kind of <laughs> like, like you have one nice acoustic 12 string, you have one nice acoustic dreadnought, you have one nice acoustic parlor guitar, you know, you have a 12 string electric guitar. And it's like, there's like 20 variables where I figure you could have most guitars kind of, you don't need like a hundred guitars. Well, there's something to say about the creative efforts behind somebody who can make something interesting out of what everybody else has. If you can do something that is above or at the very least interesting compared to what a lot of other people would consider to be what that tool can do, like I like to work with highlighters and office supplies because it's it comes up with really interesting solutions. I try to do something that is more than what the pieces are, more than the sum of its parts. And I, I feel like your music accomplishes that either with loops or without uh, because it's you utilize a guitar in a in a completely unique way that I uh, very much appreciate. Well, I, I mean, well, thanks. I, well, it, well, see, it's to me so much of what makes guitar playing distinctive is in hand control. And I mean, I know that's kind of like a note, you know, duh kind of thing to say, but like I was watching something about the Carter family the other night and it was, you know, and it was talking about Maybell's guitar technique being a certain way and like her hand, like her, the, her picking pattern or something. And, and, and then, you know, like Elizabeth Cotton obviously has like a completely unique way that she played guitar because she was left-handed, but she played a right-handed guitar upside down. And then, you know, Jeff Beck died last week. And I remember reading a bunch of interviews about like how specific, like his, cause he didn't play with a pick. 
like Frizzell, like is one of those guys, modern guys who I can just like, I can tell it's him immediately. And part mm-hmm. of it is just the way he phrases. It's not even like a tone thing. Well, I mean, t- a lot of tone comes from your hand control. So I ha- I will say that like, I do think that there's this emphasis on physical and posture and like early on when you're learning an instrument. So you're kind of trying, trying to some, it's almost like potty training, you know, like, but then pretty quickly we as players can get lost in the weeds of like which amp to have, which pedal to have, which guitar to have. And, and like, I just don't, I don't think those things are necessarily as important as we get. A lot of what makes a player's sound distinctive is, is like in some very personal things like phrasing, mm-hmm. vibrato, hand control. It's, it's just interesting. As an instrument, I really only know guitar well enough to recognize that. Like, obviously, there are people who play other instruments where, like, I can recognize if it's John Coltrane or Bill Evans or something, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. But, like, there's not many musicians on other instruments that I can, like, tell who it is just by the tone. And, like, I, I, do, I can tell that with guitar a lot of times just because I do understand enough about guitar to know, like, how you make certain things sound different than other people, you know? Sure. They're very, very, very subtle, but very important muscle movements. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of those distinct players which have a home at Third Man Records. Of course, it's not terribly difficult to pick out Jack White guitar playing. So James and I, around 2015, kind of, as I mentioned earlier, got to know your music through you starting to sort of come into the orbit of Third Man and stuff. Now, I, I had noticed in your discography that um, Fathers of Time, you were on Jake Oral's label, right? From Jeff the Brotherhood? That, the, that Fathers of Time thing was a cassette that was Jake and was Jamin on that? I'm trying to remember. It was basically Jeff and a couple of other people, including myself. We did a couple of recordings. I think one of them was just like a DIY house show that he recorded and put it out. I mean, he... yeah. I don't even, I, I forgot about that, you know. Was that the path in? I mean, so I guess my question is how was. Oh, how did, how did I meet find, the third man yeah, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Who was it that I met first? Which Ben brought you in? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, well, it was, it was Ben Swank, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. he, he's like, so Ben and I have been friends since about 2011. So not long after he moved here. And he's my manager now, apart from working with Third Man. So we've just been really tight the whole time. That was the end there. It was, it was, yeah. been, I, I actually think I met Blackwell before Ben Swank, but that could have just been, uh, I, I think he moved here a little before 
moved to Nashville. Sorry, a little, a little before Ben Swank did. But yeah, I got to know the I got to know Swank very well. We he used to have this like weekly DJ night at this bar in Nashville, and he asked me to guest DJ with him a couple of times. And and when I say DJ, I obviously mean just playing records drunkenly. I don't mean like <laughs> not like time beat matching people dancing actually dancing and paying money you know <laughs> i've bothered the man while he was djing before and yeah he seemed he seemed pretty lit so it's <laughs> i mean he actually is like one of my favorite djs but <laughs> he's good he's very good yeah but but anyway the point is like those guys were really good swank and blackwell you know and jack at, at that point was i mean it's not like he, he didn't really go out because he was already like really famous but a lot of the initial energy around third man that I, that I could see was those guys were really, really interested in hanging out with people in the rock community here in Nashville that were doing interesting DIY stuff. And I was friends with all those people, you know, like the, 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 the folks around infinity cat and be your own pet and just the punk scene that was, and it was like that period, like around 2009, 2012 in Nashville, Definitely, there were a lot of younger people, like and when I say younger, younger than me, getting a lot of rock and punk bands to come through here and play either house shows or venue shows that might have bypassed Nashville in the in the past, you know, for, you know, go to Atlanta, go to Memphis, but maybe skip Nashville. And so there was just kind of a changing sense of what Nashville was or could be as a rock and roll town, to be honest. And I think Third Man and Jack and all those guys... I mean, they they helped redefine what people's perception of Nashville was, and and they still do. You know, they're like they're like an important cultural institution here. You know, like as a like if there's nothing else, like I mean, as a label for sure, and as a store. But you know, now Third Man is one of the or the Blue Room. I mean, they're kind of they're, they're trying to kind of separate their identities a little bit. I mean, the Blue Room is like one of the more cutting edge venues we have in nashville we, yeah. we don't have a lot of spaces for left of the dial shows so to speak and they take they they do a lot of those kind of that kind of programming and so yeah i don't know it was just it was that it was just kind of like a lot of different avenues but that sort of they kind of became a home for a lot of that energy and um but it was largely through ben swank you know just and friend being friends with him so since All you right. grew up there was the not invasion but was was the popularization or the um, the hip hipness of Nashville, like with all these new people coming in? Did you view that as a um, a positive thing, or like uh, did you view that as more of like a hip tourism or something like that? Like, did you ever throw a punch at a black key or anything like that, or you like? How how often do you yell at the bachelorette buses that drive? Through? Oh no! I mean, whatever. I mean, I mean, I'm not. I'm kidding. They're they're fine. They're I mean, I think themselves. it's. I mean, it's gotten a little out of control uh, in the last few years. I I would say this. My issues with what's happened in Asheville have very little to do with like who's coming here to get drunk or who's coming here to like take a photo at a mural or something. It's the cost of housing for people who actually live here. Sure, sure. We're probably like a little less friendly to the native population, so to speak, than in a city like Portland would be, frankly, you know, for in terms of like hip tourism. Right. To me, like San Francisco is like nightmare scenario. Um, mm. New York and L.A. are like a little behind that. But yeah, the cost of living is, you know, but that's just what happens when people come to a city and start gentrifying it. And yeah. And, and unfortunately, the first people they get 
pushed out are usually the people who've been here the longest and usually the people who have been here the longest and who are don't have as much of a voice politically or or sometimes economically so i don't know if there are a lot of cities where it's like there's a lot of tourism but like people don't stay there i get new orleans probably has that a little more yeah but new orleans is also like really prone to like kind of natural disasters and nashville's not so like maybe that keeps out permanent <laughs> i mean yeah i just think like celebrities always moved here because it's a show business center yeah it's an international show business city it's just become more of a cosmopolitan one and so it's attracting a different kind of celebrity and it's probably starting to attract a certain kind of rich person that is used to paying a certain amount of cost of living right in a place like california or new york or Seattle even, you know, but politically is probably a little more like, uh, it's like the same people that are moving to Florida and Texas, you know? Yes. Like, <laughs> we, we, I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Re- this, this, Republicans yeah. who like to go to Whole yeah. Foods and who like kale salads. Sure. They exist. Yeah. <laughs> Shape but it's, and Nashville is, Nashville is turning, uh, it, I'm seeing something in Nashville that it, uh, I could see clearly in sorry my dog's howling. I could see clearly in Los Angeles, which is so many people. It's the gentrification is so many people moving there, and the cost of housing going up because the demand is so high, and people knowing that they could charge whatever they want. And they really and that, can't because there's no there isn't. I don't know if there are any major urban areas in the southeast that have the kind of rent control that does exist on the west coast and 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 a beast. Yeah. So it got, I mean, like people's rent, I mean, I've heard like crazy stories about people whose rent goes up like a hundred percent. Right. That's rare. And I think it's still cheaper to live here than it would be like Los Angeles, you know, gas alone. But as someone who's bounced back and forth between LA and Nashville for about six years now, I have to say the price of living is starting to be about the same. Oof. There's just more hyper wealth in California. Yeah, you can find pockets of accessibility there, but it's it's all in the surrounding Nashville area for sure. Uh, we, you know, we drove through Tennessee, and and you could see the closer you got through to Nashville, the higher the prices start to get, and then it drops off again, like with the closer you get to North, South Carolina or whatever. So it's strange. I mean, you see the same thing in New York. You know, further upstate you go, the cheaper it gets. But I wanted to move to like Hudson Valley like years ago. I was like, God, man, you know, like, I mean, of course everybody did, but like once COVID happened, it was like, nope, that's over. (laughs) Cause I mean, like when somebody has a job and someone tells them, okay, well actually it doesn't matter if you come into the office or not, which I do think that's going to start changing back. Unfortunately, it's already with me. So yeah. (laughs) But like, I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm, I don't even, well, I do have a band actually here, you know, um, which is kind of like the group that's been associated with like the third man stuff that we were talking about earlier. But having said that, I mean, as an artist, you know, I I could do something like go live somewhere for a month, have a residency. I can record a lot of stuff on my own, you know, like, and even then, as long as I have access to like an airport within an hour or so at this point, it doesn't really matter where I live in the, in the United States. So I am very curious to see what happens I don't think there's going to be a decentralization um, because I think at the end of the day, most people, whether they're in the arts or not, want connection. They want to be around people. They want to be around like-minded people. 
there's not going to be a lot of people like moving out to cabins and mm-hmm. maybe they do that once they get married and have kids. But like, uh, you know, I mean, for, I will say it's, it's hard, you know, cause I'm, I'm single and I, I don't have kids and, you know, it's nice to be close to lots of other people where there's like an invitation. I'm in a, an environment that's conducive to collaborating and just seeing each other and stuff. And, you know, of course we lost a lot of that in the last couple of years because of the isolation of everything. Cause there are, as you all, y'all know, huge swaths of the United States where we could set up artist colonies, but they would be in places that a lot of creative people don't want to live. You know, <laughs> I mean, it would be like a lot of places in like the, I mean, I hear Ted Nugent has some ground for sale. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> I'm sure he does. It's also heavily fortified. <laughs> He's also canning his pee, actually, Ted. Oh, he He's probably got... is. Yeah, uh, that was probably. not surprising. Yeah. yeah. It's to attract female Nugents. <laughs> right. <laughs> got to get that uric acid for all the hunting. Um, <laughs> um, well, we'll steer a little bit towards Nashville. You're live at Third Man Set. The album is excellent, and it's an excellent snapshot of that kind of point in your career you mentioned the blue room which that takes place in the blue room that is a really nice very loud venue and it's a very good uh, uh, we always like to hear records coming out of there what's the vibe uh, like playing in the blue room for you um, because sometimes third man acts can get a little uh, rowdy i mean you got you have your star crawlers coming through there and uh but your music, at least for us, is, is is a little more on the calming side. Uh, right. So how was the vibe in that room? How do you compare a third man crowd to, say, other venues in Nashville? I guess non-Broadway venues, because those are going to be rowdy, too. <laughs> no, it's interesting, because I think, I think the vibe and when I say tone, I mean more vibe of that place has changed in the last few years as the Nashville small venue landscape has shrunk, frankly. Mm-hmm. How would you compare it to something like a Grimey's? Well, I mean, I wouldn't really consider Grimey's a venue because they're a record I guess store. they do a lot of shows there, I know, but. Um, well, I think because the Blue Room is a production room, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it lends itself to being more of a listening room. Now, now, granted, I know they do, you know, there are a lot of like, like you said, kind of like rowdy rock shows there and dance parties and stuff. But like acoustically, it's a great room. Mm-hmm. Those rounded corners make it hard to stand, but are very good for the acoustics. <laughs> no, it's it, it's a really good sounding room. It's a good sounding stage. Everybody who works at Third Man's really thoughtful. The hospitality is always really nice. I mean, the backstage is the office, so it's kind of like it's not uncomfortable. It's not like being in a, a rock club with graffiti and it smells bad. I mean, it's like a really like it's a high class operation.
I could see it being a little intimidating to like someone who hadn't been there before because, you know, people are walking around and like, I don't even know if they're even really doing uniforms anymore in the back of house. But, you know, I mean, there's, there's a vibe, you know, it's very mm-hmm. stylized. There's a lot of taxidermy, which I'm not really <laughs> down with. But um, <laughs> but like in terms of the hospitality and the the like the people who work there and the way you're treated as an act. And I think more and more, I would say the trust that a lot of local people have and in, in what the programming is and like what the environment's going to be like when you get there. I mean, they didn't have their um, drink license for a long time. And it really was just kind of like a listening room. Now it's kind of like, you know, they have like a pretty decent little bar and a couple of couches and they'll move the couches out when it's a sold out show. But it's it's like a more it's, it's a more comfortable place to see a show. I mean, it's not like a dinner theater, but it's it's not a mm. it doesn't feel like a rock club. It it feels closer to like a performing arts black box room that you would see in New York or Chicago or L.A. And, and like, frankly, Nashville just doesn't have very many of those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm 43. I've been doing this for a long time and I like rock clubs. I've owned one. I've I've worked in a lot of them. I, I just. It's nice to go somewhere where it's clean and yeah. like you said, as rounded corners, nice furniture. <laughs> uh, and really, the only the only thing I would say that kind of keeps it from being like a, a great place for maybe older audiences and quiet shows is just like the fact that it is m- mostly standing room. It's not like a, yeah. you know, if there was a way to incorporate more seating into it, which they used to like put chairs out, but I think it, it because it's like kind of has that sort of blank slate quality of a production room. It lends itself to lots of different kinds of shows and events and they can screen films there. They don't, it doesn't, it's not just like a, right. you know, they can do a lot of different kinds of things there that, so yeah, I don't know. It's was, definitely become one of my favorite places to play in town. Was the set there intended to be a, uh, a live record or was that something that just came about after, after the No, fact? cause actually that live record, I was technically the opening act that night for Peter Walker. Huh. I mean, I have to say, I don't right, know right off the top of my head if he's still with us, but he was a, he made a couple of records for um, Vanguard in the 60s, and he was a solo guitar player. They did cut a record. I think they, he had booked that gig there specifically to cut a record that I think, I don't remember if that ever came out or not. But my half of the show did. They did press it. Mm-hmm. And it actually sold pretty well. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one because it, I feel like it covers a pretty wide range of like sounds of what I was able to do at the time, you know, like basically half acoustic, half electric. And yep. yeah, I like, I'm, I'm fond of that one.
when was that 2014 i think so that's been almost 10 years yeah well speaking of your live performances i had mentioned the disgraceland performance uh, earlier in the conversation but i do want to reiterate especially if anyone out there hasn't checked this out or did not have access to that vault see if you can find one on a secondary market or something because that live at disgraceland is it's just one of my go-to's like I put that thing on so much. Hardcore collectors would get mad at me for how much I actually spin that spin that album. But <laughs> but um, I was just wondering if you had any um, memories you could share. Obviously, it's a. I'm sure there's some complicated emotions considering uh, Anthony Bourdain's surprising passing. Right, but, right. Um, I do wonder if you have any special memories of that night. Insight into. Okay, I've got to pick a set list for playing amongst the dead weather and the kills. What am I going to play? You know, that kind of thing. You know, it's a, there's a style disparity there. So I just I wanted your general impressions and any stories from that night you might be willing to share. Yeah. Swank asked us to do that. And, you know, they were filming the episode of... No Reservations, I think. It, or wait, no, it was... Parts uh, Unknown. Parts Unknown. unknown. Yeah. yeah. And I think that a lot of the episode, as I as I can remember, did end up revolving around Allison and from the kills. And Anthony Bourdain went out to lunch with Swank, and and he hung out with Margot. And, and honestly, that's just like a very, it's a pretty small community of people. I mean, like you know, it's not. I mean, it was at Jack's Jack Lawrence's house, which is shocking to me. I thought it was Allison's house, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, well, she lived, she 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 was living there at the time. Well, I mean, there's a okay. guest. I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah, they're all kind of, it's all family stuff. Yeah. Um, I think Allison was living there um at the time, but like in the guest house or something. But okay. Um, but it was basically like kind of like a semi last minute staged house party. Nashville, if you haven't been there, you probably know it as what a country music capital, Grand Ole Opry, and it is Music City. And there is indeed plenty of country music, both genuine and fake-ass. But it's way more than that. Nashville is one of the fastest-growing metropolitan areas in all America. People who grew up here will tell you the city is in a state of perpetual, never-ending change. And the rate at which things are changing is accelerating. 80 to 100 new faces move to Nashville every single day. Welcome to Disgraceland, Allison's Nashville home. It's a house party, so there's got to be food. You just had to do a small series there where you weren't looking. <laughs> you don't have to look when you cut, right? No. We can look at each other. Yeah. And we played in, like, a living room. And yeah. there were probably, like, 30 people there, and I don't know how many production people there. And, you know, yeah, Anthony Bourdain was kind of there wandering around, you know, smoking cigarettes with people outside, drinking beer. I met him just real briefly. He seemed awesome. You know, he he was like, you know, he's like one of those people you just tell, like, you know, you know, he looked you in the eye and he seemed like a real person. Right. Yeah, it was cool. It was, you know, I, I think I invited a I mean, it was it was it was like secret, you know, but like my girlfriend came, I think a couple of other like I invited my sister to come. There were some like we could invite some people to go. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like turn your phone in and yeah, right, right. <laughs> we weren't at that point yet. Yonder pouch. Yeah. 
you know, I've been on a lot of production sets, so like, I mean, having like lights and lots of wires, and I mean, that does kind of, you know, kill the animacy a little bit. But you know, <laughs> but it wasn't, but it wasn't pretentious at all. It was just very. Everybody there was friends, and yeah, there weren't that many people there. Like I said, there couldn't have been more than thirty or forty people there. Did you get one of the tattoos? No, I, I don't have any <laughs> tattoos. I'm actually kind of proud of it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> maybe made, I was just curious. I've made it this long, you know. It's kind of right. like I guess I'll maybe when I turn fifty, I'll start smoking and get a tattoo. There you That's go. Right. That's that's, right. that's that's all everyone's going right? and buy a machine gun. I just yeah. do all the things. You know, all the again, Ted Nugent's got some ground. <laughs> I think interested in. Uh, yeah, that guy is not an insecure dude at all. No, no, not no, no. All. The sound quality of those recordings at Disgraceland were were surprisingly great too. Like uh, for being a room, I'm pretty sure Van or like maybe Van wasn't doing it, but like one of Jack's main engineers yeah. was, was recording it. I mean, that's the other thing. Like. Those guys, they employ the best people. They really yeah. do. They like they they the reason the stuff that they do sounds and looks good is because they really do a good job on it. Yeah, they do boutique quality. Yeah, it's boutique quality, and you know Jack's kind of like one of the last rock stars. Like I don't know if we're really gonna have another guy like like another like white dude like that. You know, for you know like who's kind of a old school. When it comes to being kind of like an impresario type personality uh, mm-hmm. style and like, but it, it does it trickles down in a in a cool way, you know, to to a lot of the stuff they work on. I mean, I I think it's I think it's hard I think it's hard being part of that organization. I think he I think he's a pretty impulsive person, and he like a lot of celebrities. I think he like doesn't understand when things like don't go his way real quickly. You know, we've conversed with Lalo. So we, we've heard some of the, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. The, well, sure. the impulse. But like, no, I mean, that, that's the thing. I've never had an experience with, with Jack or third man that like, and his people, the people that work for him and work for them there. It's always rad. It's always cool. It's not pretentious. It's chill. Or if it's not chill, it's at least like feels kind of organic and punk rock. And yeah. Nice. Now, if- if I'm not mistaken, I think you might have seen the last live performance by the Dead Weather that night because I think that that predates the um, the Colbert that, taping. Uh, Colbert taping, yeah. yeah. So that's that's, that's pretty oh, special. Maybe so. I mean, at least for the time being. But uh, that's a pretty cool experience to be there for. <laughs> Uh, now, I, I caught you at uh, Viejas Arena in San Diego back in 2018. It was funny because um, I was hustling to get there. Like Third Man, you talk about um, record clubs and stuff, makes me fans of stuff uh, or makes their, their listeners fans of things. And so I knew exactly who you were and I was trying to get there to see you and my brother-in-law who I went with. He's like, why are we rushing to get there? I was like, Jack, he's like, Jack's not going to be on until 10 or something. I was like, I'm, I'm going to see William Tyler. Uh, oh, we got fun. we got there, and it that was talk about rowdy crowds. It's very much a college arena. It was one of the more I think there were people moshing at some point. Like, un it was. Well, isn't it, that where like um the college 
whatever the main college there. That's their basketball arena, right? Uh, yeah. So I think it was a lot of those those kind of see, kids. This is the thing that's so funny about San Diego. Actually, that was really fun. I remember that being a really, really fun show because some of my LA friends came down to it. We like went tiki bar crawling, which was awesome. like, <laughs> yeah. San Diego rules. No, San Diego's great. It's yeah. good. It's fun. San Diego is awesome. But the problem with being San Diego as an arts town or lack of it, and I'm just going to say it, it's like, for being like the fifth or sixth largest city in America or like the t- it's in the top 10, mm-hmm. the infrastructure they have for live music there, it feels like a hundred thousand people capacity uh, or population college town. Yeah. Like, because the Casbah is not a bad club, but it's calcified in a way that like it hasn't changed I mean, I've been playing shows there with bands for like 25 years and um, it hasn't changed at all. And then like the soda bar is cool, but it's just kind of like a newer Casbah. And so the only other like literally the only show experiences I'd have I've had in San Diego have either been at like 100 capacity kind of like pretty grungy rock clubs or that. Okay. Right. 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 <laughs> and then I think on that tour, we also played Las Vegas. I mean, I don't know. Think I remember we very much played yeah. Las Vegas. And like, I was just like, I never need to play Las Vegas again because <laughs> never going to be as cool as this. Oh, yeah. Like, well, we played at a four star casino hotel two nights, got to stay at the hotel opening for Jack White. Yeah. You know, it was like, it's not going to get weirder or cooler than this, you know? It's awesome. I'm not into. I'm just not into gambling. It's not a. Me neither. Although I felt the last time I was in, I was in Reno. I I was at the airport and they because they had slot machines at the airport. Cause, yeah, and I was sure. like, yeah. I was like, all right, and I lost like five bucks. I'm like, oh no, I'm good. No, I'm fine. Thanks. I'm a very good drunk blackjack player. I must. Say. Okay, I was going to say. I so this is the thing. I so I had a friend in high school who got really into computer blackjack and then when we were both 19 19 or 20 it was before you could drink in the states we went down his parents were the kind of people who were like i mean they had money you know and they were kind of like when they took family vacations it's like let's go to las vegas let's go to atlantic city like that kind of stuff it's just wild to me but i went i went with him and his family to puerto rico and we went to a bunch of different like casino hotels and we did play blackjack a lot i, I have to say like i did get into blackjack because i figured especially at that age you're like if you sit there they'll keep bringing you drinks 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have right. to keep playing, but Blackjack's one of those yeah. games that you can really... You can draw things out. You can control the pace a lot better than something like Roulette, you know. Roulette was the game I drunkenly played. I, when I, on my bachelor party, uh, I had a friend who worked for Google as like a, he did all kinds of shit. He's he's like a mathematician. Anyway, he he was just like, I have a way to win at Roulette every single time. And I'm like, all right, you can play for me and I'll sit there and get the drinks. Yeah. And we won, like... It was, James was arrested. Yeah, no, I was... Yeah, yeah he was... Yeah. Um, but, uh, and his way of winning did, did, was... Did, 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 did they bring in the cooler? Did they bring in the guy like, hey, uh, maybe you'd like to... He, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting way of doing it. I got, obviously, very drunk at my bachelor party. But, um, yeah, it, 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 it's all kind of boring to me. Uh, I was just curious if, if, um, if you did, uh, uh, you know, feeling as lucky as you were... And, doing a, a giant show like that in Vegas. You know, but, that, I've only been through there one, once or twice since that trip, and I have to say, like, there's something kind of amazing about that city, um, but it's basically pretty horrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it the, the weird mafia presence? <laughs> yeah, I don't feel that as much anymore as like it's just it because you know like in the '90s they did there was this whole like citywide campaign to like make it family friendly, right? Like, yeah. To compete with like Orlando, I guess, or like Dollywood or something. And so like that's kind of like the vibe I get there now is like Ripley's believe it or not, you know. But it's like mm-hmm. also like everything's legal and that's kind of creep. Like I like who yeah. would take the kids there? <laughs> I mean, so well, yeah. my, our parents did in the okay. 1990s, and that's and we, when James. I think it's because of Chevy Chase. Uh, oh yeah, I think it, okay. I think oh, it was Vegas Vacation enough. that made him want to do that. <laughs> see, see, that's why you got to hang out on Fremont Street where all the hookers and drug addicts. Oh, like and... the old school Vegas. Well, so I have to say, like, actually, this is really funny because, like, so. So the last time I was in Las Vegas was about a year ago. I was driving back across the country and my mom did the trip with me and she had never, cause she had never done it before. Um, my dad's done it before. And we decided to stop in Las Vegas cause we were both like, let's go see that Beatles Cirque du Soleil thing, you know? Yeah, and it was amazing. It was so good, you know? And like, we went to this like really nice Japanese restaurant. It was like really great. It was like, like 20, 24 hours there was plenty. It was fine. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay. I mean, come on down to Atlantic City near near me and uh you'll you you'll feel the mafia presence. Um <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You, it's still the there. minute you walk in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, yeah. Jersey. Yeah. Hey, uh, <laughs> hey, uh what William Tyler, are you uh you down to do a lightning round with us? Yes. All right. So we're gonna do rapid fire, rapid fire questions. And we're going to play uh, the lightning round music uh, now. We'll fix sure. it in post. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and we're going to uh, fire away. James, would you like to be the first? I would love to. Now, I had some very good breakfast when I was over in Nashville. Uh, what's what's your best breakfast spot? Uh, it's a bakery called Dozen. Ooh, okay. Not too far from Third Man, actually. Funniest member of the dead weather. Oh, Jack Lawrence for sure. Okay, I've heard that. We've heard that a lot, actually. <laughs> dry, 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 dry wit, but like, yeah. For a dude who seems so silent, uh, he he seems to have a reputation for being uh, one a very good drinker and two extremely funny. Um, so so I agree to both of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, best gig you've ever played? Oh God. Uh, 
I will say I played an art center up in um South Shore, you know, like south of Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was like was a performing arts center opening for this vocal group called Mountain Man. And I don't remember why, but it was just like I played a perfect set. This was like right before COVID, like late 2019 or so. Incredible nice. acoustics, like windows looking out on the rocks of the Atlantic, you know, just like yeah. perfect. Oh, that's great. All right. Uh, Margot Price sang about Nashville's cocaine cowboys. You ever run into any of those? No, I have like an insect repellent for people that do cocaine. <laughs> like, like, I, I must seem like a like a narc or something. <laughs> um, what was your first car? Volvo station wagon. All right, got a year like, on that bad boy. Eighty-seven, like an old one. Go. Yeah, yeah. Good, solid, solid. What's the worst gig you've ever played? <laughs> um, South of Boston, overlooked <laughs> the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, in the just the, how interesting the the whole thing about it was. It was so it was 2014. It was in El Paso. It was like one of those gigs where I just I, my booking agent got me a gig because she knew the the, the venue. I get there pretty long drive i get there the sound guy is super sweet but still drunk from the night before (laughs) so he goes home after i tell him that i can run the board for myself in the opening act who was another solo artist so i actually did sound for myself and played to i think two people But it was also really cozy because it was like I thought El Paso was rad, and I, I got a hotel like a price assigned a hotel that was like a block away. So I like just sat and had some drinks and talked to the bartender after the show, and I was walked back to the hotel. It was fine, but it was like, yeah. I, so maybe that wasn't the worst, but like I don't know. I, I it, the the worst. I'm I don't know. I've probably forgotten really black forgotten about it. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a memorable bad show. though. <laughs> it sounds like it had a silver lining though, which is good. It did have um, a silver lining. Okay, you're you're 13. You're spinning one record all the time. What is it? At 13, um, now Ken Burns came out with baseball at this point. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I wasn't as into the baseball soundtrack as the Civil War soundtrack. Let's see, what would 13 have been? Oh man, it's probably whatever the latest Pearl Jam record was at the time. There we go. All right, all right. What's another surprising instrument that you play? You'll accept kazoo. Uh, harmonica? Hey, there we go. The one instrument Jack White refuses to learn how to play. <laughs> oh, wait, no, I can, I can think of a, I think I need a weirder one. Clarinet. Whoa. All right. There we go. That's a good uh, one. Are you ever going to do tape loops with that? That would be wild. I probably should. Yeah. Then we'll and, really uh, know the car is dead. <laughs> uh, we were delighted to learn that you used to play with uh, Charles Elzer Loudermilk himself, uh, Charlie Lovin of the Lovin Brothers, who actually wearing a shirt that's based off of Saint Israel. Oh, that's great. Brothers. I was wondering what that shirt was. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a They Might Be Giants one, but um, anyway. Uh, I'm I'm sure there must be a, a ton of stories he was able to impart upon you. Are there any fun uh, Ira stories? No, I only... I, so I did a couple of, like recording sessions with charlie i never played live with him 
I was sort of a, in a stable of guys that his producer at the time sort of, you know, were just kind of on call for like what whoever he was recording at the time. <clears throat> so I was really lucky to get to do that. He was pretty guarded about he was pretty guarded about like the Ira stories. I, I didn't really hear anything from him that was surprising or I mean he told some pretty off color jokes, but like mm. really, didn't know, didn't tell anyone. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was kinda like I was kinda like, oh God, really? <laughs> um <laughs> But he was sweet, you know, sweet old guy. You know, it's like, you know, he was he, he was endearing to a degree, also very cranky to a degree. <laughs> but I found it very amusing that he would, um, because he still gigged all the time, like really up yeah. until he died. And you know, he would just do like pickup gigs in like weird little small towns all around the southeast. His guitar player, who was this total like virtuoso kid, it was like twenty twenty one who could just shred like Chet Atkins or Ben Skill. He was kind of his band leader and driver. And Charlie would be like, Ben, where are we working tonight? <laughs> and I kind of like liked that. I liked that about him, that he was sort of referred to gigging as working. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we got the last one here. Uh, I love the record New Vanitas. Uh, that, that was one that you had put out in 2020. And I had noticed, it's funny, when I, um, when I was going through and, and listening uh, again in preparation for this episode i had noticed that itunes classifies it as an unknown genre and my last lightning round question for you is if gun to your head you had to classify your genre what would you call it um oh i had a good term for this that i came up with a few years ago and i thought i came up with it maybe somebody else did but i've used it a lot cosmic pastoral hey beautiful Paul, you can do that. Uh, you'll have to start typing that in. Your iTunes, because you're the last person to use iTunes, Paul. I'm sorry to say. I'm yes. I'm a holdout. William Tyler, uh, we are just so honored to have you on today. Thank you for making the time. Um, Such a fun convo, guys. Yeah, this yeah, is a blast. seriously. Thank you for for talking with us. It was uh, it was wonderful. At the end of every episode, we say where we're going to be looking for a home next in the spirit of Bull Weevil. And so uh, to close out the show, I will be looking for a home here in some of those what I can only imagine are cancelable jokes from uh, the the Lovin' Brother that you played with. Uh, James, where will you be looking for a home? I'll be looking for a home in a Volvo station wagon somewhere out there in uh, south of Boston near the Atlantic. <laughs> That's good. Nice. William Tyler, where will you be uh, looking for a home? I'll be looking for a home. I think on the Empire Builder train, I just yesterday I bought that Amtrak uh, rail pass where you get to ride trips for in a month for, for, for like it was on sale for like $300. So I think, oh my I, gosh, I think I'm going to take a couple of cross country train trips in February. You going to be riding the rails? I'm going to be riding the rails. You busting out that spindle? I'm not going to be high on cocaine, but I will okay. be riding that train. Well, uh, you will now be a, a regular troubadour. You and Pokey on the road. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Maybe we'll cross paths. Yeah. All right, William. Thank you so much, sir. Okay. Take care, all. The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at 
the third men underscore podcast on Instagram, at third men cast on Twitter, and search the third men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Hey, come on down to Pennsylvania, where everything's dirt <laughs> cheap, and you can't really find anything. Allentown's probably pretty... It's 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 okay. Yeah, that's all right. Um, but clearly I'm in a bunker at the moment. So, you know. Yeah, James is doomsday prepping right now. He's canning his own urine as we speak. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and no one knows why. People have tried to talk him out of it, but he he just keeps it's, insisting. I don't even know why I'm doing it. It's not for sustenance. Yeah. It's mostly a hobby. Yeah, it's uh, a hobby. It's, it's a nice you know, hobby. It's pleasant. Everybody's got their pleasant weird hobby. collecting things. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on it can be as much or as little as you can swing and all donations are greatly appreciated the last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough but if you would like to help us out that would be amazing all right it's all from me remember you can head to patreon.com slash third men podcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already all right everybody i'll see you on the show And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Sorry, I am I am petting a dog off screen, so I'm not just like doing weird shit with oh, my no, hands over I, here. I, yes. I, 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 James I, is really I, into this interview. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just raring to go. <laughs>